and I hope I'm delivering on that promise because we're just three weeks in, I think, to the series, and we're just on verse 7, and today it's only about verse 7. So as you're, you're turning there, just a reminder of what we've been talking about. We've seen these opening verses, this beautiful description and powerful uh, image of God's choosing us before the foundation of the world, and he chooses us uh, out of his own good will. It is nothing that we do. It is simply by his sovereign, gracious election. And uh, we saw last week that this was connected as well to our adoption, that we are given a status as sons of God, that everything that is true and, and, and that Jesus inherits as the Son of God, it, we get to claim that too because of his work. And so today's verse kind of connects all that, you know, and it's answering the question of what does this election, you know, mean? How, do, how, how is it applied to us? How is it that we are called and adopted sons and daughters of God? And, and we see that it, it hinges on Jesus Christ and his work on the cross for us. So if you've found Ephesians 1, verse 7, here uh, pay attention to the reading of God's word. In him, that's Jesus Christ, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for giving us the riches of your grace. You don't simply pardon us. You pour out forgiveness and mercy upon us through your Son, Jesus Christ. It is by his work alone that we can have forgiveness. It's by his work alone that we get to call you Father and have a restored relationship with you. I pray, Father, that as I would preach this sermon, the Word of God would be magnified, the Son of God would be glorified, and the people of God edified. Amen. Uh, a couple of years ago, I was creating a, a membership class for a church plant that Amanda and I were, were part of, and it was my first real actual ministry uh, position. And so I was putting this thing together, and it was a membership course that we did on like a Saturday afternoon. and. Um, we were trying to do you know, some visual clues, and not clues, but some visual tools to help people visualize things that we wanted them to get about you know, the gospel or how the church was going to be teaching the Bible. And so we, we found some real great videos about like, the power of adoption, and we were looking for one about the power of redemption. And I found this commercial from Thailand, and I found it on YouTube, and it was... The, the YouTube description was, why can't we make movies with this type of power? Because it, it's a short commercial, but it, was, it told this beautiful story. And, and the, it begins with a, a little boy being dragged out of like a store on some busy street in Thailand. And he is just being barraged by the storekeeper, a woman. And she's kind of smacking him on the head. And his, his little face is pointed down. And he's weeping. And he's very ashamed. And you know, he's obviously gotten caught doing something wrong. And another man who had uh, kind of a street food cart sees this and his heart breaks for the little boy and he comes up and he intervenes and he looks at what the kid stole. And the kid stole some cough medicine and like a bag of soda because they don't do, if you've ever been to Thailand, they don't do bottles. It's bags of soda with a straw. And the man takes the medicine, he takes the soda and he pays for the medicine and the soda and then he gives the boy uh, a couple of servings of rice. He puts it all in a bag, and his 
the shopkeeper's daughter has to put it all together and she's a little resentful about it because she doesn't understand why daddy's being merciful. And the, the dad gives all of it to the little boy and the kid snatches it and runs off. No thank you, nothing. And as you fast forward, you see the shopkeeper becomes extremely ill. And he goes to the hospital and the doctor comes in and he meets with the, the, the shopkeeper and his now adult daughter. And it's looking really bad. And what's worse is the daughter gets the hospital bill and it's got a lot of zeros behind it. It is just massive. And she is clearly no way of being able to pay for this bill. And it goes back to the doctor who's you know, lovingly and caringly watching over the shopkeeper. And one day the daughter comes in and her dad's looking a lot better. And she picks up a, a folder for, that was supposed to be another, I guess, bill or something, but she picks it up and it's an explanation of what her dad's been going through. And then it says, as regarding the bill, this bill was paid for 20 years ago. It was paid for with a vial of medicine, a Coke, and two bags of rice. And it then does a little montage thing of the doctor who had been treating this man was the little thief that the man showed mercy to. That man redeemed that boy in that moment. He bought back a penalty that he couldn't pay himself. And years later, that boy paid back something that this man and his family had no way of paying for. The clip is a lot better. I mean, weeping. But I hope you get the power of it, that there is something about redemption that stirs our hearts. I mean, this is Thailand. These, I'm assuming these people aren't believers in Jesus Christ, but they, they know what redemption is. They can tell that story. But redemption is, is rooted here biblically in, in Jesus Christ. And as we go through this verse today, I mean, it's a short verse, but as I keep saying, these short verses are full of power. They're full of grace. I mean, they are dynamite to our souls, and they stir us up. So I want us to ask three questions about this verse. We need to ask, why do we need redemption? How do we receive redemption? And what do we receive from redemption? So let's look at this first question. Let's try to answer the first question together. Why do we need redemption? It's not in the verse, but it's assumed. Why do we need redemption? Because of our sin. Our sin says, I can give you a great reward. I will give you riches. I will give you pleasure. I'll give you status. I'll give you fulfillment. And what does it always deliver? Death. Ultimately, it, it makes you a slave to all these passions. We went through this a lot in Ecclesiastes, right? So sin is our root problem here today. Uh, John Stott says that the Bible takes seri sin seriously because it takes humanity seriously. But that leads into another question then. What is sin? The Westminster Shorter Catechism, which is just a great tool to, to lead you through uh, all sorts of what the Bible teaches, asks that question. It says, what is sin? And the answer is, sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression of the law of God. It is a rebellion against the lawgiver, against God. And that's what sin is. As much as it's a relational issue, I mean, we have all been wronged and we all know we've wronged others. But we often forget that every sin is a sin against God. 
somebody that didn't miss this, who sinned a lot, was David. Right after after uh, David and Bathsheba had um, after he sinned against Bathsheba and murdered her husband, and he's been uh, caught and called out by his prophet Nathan. He writes Psalm 51, which is one of the most powerful songs of conviction of sin there is. I mean, if you are struggling with, with how to articulate your sinfulness, go and read and pray back to God, Psalm 51, because God inspired it. So it's good words to say back to him when you don't know what to say. And David writes and sings, Against you, you only, God, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. And David goes on, it's not just that we do wrong things, it's that we have something wrong in us, in our nature, that was there from when we were born. Because in the very next verse, he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. We have something within us that is trying to kill us, and we call it sin. Now, the Bible has tons of different words to refer to sin. And there's a one, the verb you hear uh, that's translated transgression actually has a root in the word of to fall, as in like a fall from grace, and it conveys a, a big range of moral failure. But it's, it's the same word that Paul uses in Romans 5 when he talks about the sin of our first father, Adam. So it's, it, it's a way to talk about sin that's of a huge magnitude. I mean, Adam's first sin kind of ruined it for the rest of us. But it also covers a bunch of other moral issues that we might have. And he talks about some of those in Galatians. So it's got a broad range, but it has this fallenness, this willful act of rebellion that falls short of God's law. And so not only do we have this sin nature in us, and like I said, it's an enemy and it's out to get us. And and that's what it is. We have a war between us and our best efforts fighting it often come up short. And Paul uh, beautifully puts this in Romans 7. I mean, Romans 7 is this great monologue into the struggle between a man who knows he's been forgiven in Christ Jesus and is still struggling with sin. And he puts it so well in Romans 7. He says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me, that is, in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want to do, I keep on doing. So we see then that that there's the severity of sin that is in us, that is always trying to work its way out, that's trying to trip us up, that we give into, and that is always holding out a reward, but always leads to our death. But there's another reason why we need redemption. It's not just our sin. It's that we can't redeem ourselves. I looked at a few other religions and how they have articulate a doctrine of redemption, if, if they do. Uh, and so Buddhism teaches that all beings, all human creation, and actually not just human, all created sentient beings, uh, have a Buddha nature already within them. So this means that redemption is not found outside of oneself. It's just waiting inside of you to, to come out. It's being awakened to the Buddha or the divine within. So you actually can redeem yourself through this process of awakening. Islam teaches two types of redemption. One is through repentance uh, and and penance and piety, and another is through the, the prayers and intercession of Muhammad. Interestingly, the idea of redemption being offered uh, is not found in Allah. It's not that Allah redeems Muslims. 
It is that they work out their own redemption, and Allah accepts it and says that'll do. Now, we're not probably going to bump into too many Muslims in Marian that I know of, and I'm not sure about Buddhists, but it was, I wanted to share those to show you what other world religions teach. But there's another pretty popular, wide thing that we deal with, and that's our secular culture, what we experience in the broad sweep of, of the Western world in the United States, and that's usually people who are atheistic or agnostic or into spirituality or new age, we see that there are some other conflicting things here, right? Because in one sense, our culture doesn't offer redemption at all, right? That's why we have cancel culture. It's the idea that if you slip up one time, if you say the wrong thing, either intentionally or by accident, or if you have a moral failure, or you fail to uphold the morality or cultural uh, values of today, if you mess up in any of those ways, you're gone. You're, you're canceled. You're written off from history. Don't get a job again. Don't try to do anything again. It would be better if you just didn't exist. We want to forget that you were ever around. And you can see this with a celebrity that does a joke or something, you know, they say. But the problem is it's not anything recent either, right? I mean, we've seen people who have taken heat for things that happened 40 or 50 years ago when they were younger. I mean, we're all dumb when we're young, and now we're all apparently held accountable for that throughout the rest of our lives with crushing consequences. So in one sense, I don't know if our culture has a culture of redemption built into it. Just law, just condemnation. At the same time, and this is going to get me in trouble with my daughters, I think we also do have an idea of redemption. And it's related a bit to the Buddhism. I wonder if the popularity of Buddhism within New Age beliefs has kind of helped this spread. But it's this idea that we really are the answer to everything that's, that's wrong in the sense that we can just improve. We can do the right diet. We can have the right mental space. We can do, uh, you know, meditation, crystals. Uh, we could, uh, you know, light some sage around the house. We can get away negative energy. We could just think positively. And if we do all of these things, if we work really hard at approving ourselves, we will actually redeem ourselves. We'll be a good person. I mean, that is the ultimate of our day and age, right? I just want to be good. I want to be a good person. I'm not a bad person. I'm a good person. And I, you see this in Frozen 2. If you know about Frozen, if you have children at all or know a child, they know about Frozen. And in Frozen 2 is the sequel. And, and it begins with Elsa, you know, Queen Elsa, who's got the power. She's haunted by this voice that's singing out to her, and it's calling her. And this voice, eventually, she's convinced is she needs to find it because it will have the answer to how she can save her kingdom. And she traces the voice to the magical island of Atahala. And as she comes to the island, the island becomes alive to Elsa's presence and all these, you know, spirit mystical things happen with she gets to see kind of the history her history popping up in snow form and she learns some painful things but she it has a powerful song called show yourself and elsa sings out to the voice that she's still being called by you are the answer i've waited for all of my life oh show yourself let me see who you are so she's looking for this voice that will redeem her kingdom, that will give a purpose to her. She feels like it's calling her to something great, something powerful, something that's going to take her to some new meaning and purpose in life. And the voice responds, 
you are the one you've been waiting for. Elsa discovers that she is in fact the embodiment of one of the nature spirits, which is a very popular theme in the sequel. But that the spirit, kind of like the Buddhism part, is it's already inside of her and it just needs to, to come up. Her redemption is already right there in her. John Calvin, the reformer, <laughs> called this the devil's treachery at work. He wrote, we see how the devil has, by his craft, cut off all hope of salvation from the world by causing it to be believed that every man must ransom himself and make his own atonement with God. We are our own redeemers. So I am not the answer I've been waiting for all of my life. David, remember what he just sang? He certainly knew he wasn't the redeemer that he's been waiting for all of his life. Remember what Paul said about his desires? All the things that I want to do, they're terrible. And the things that I don't want to do, when I want to be holy and I want to follow God's law, oh man, it's hard and I don't do it. What is wrong with me? So no, I am not the answer to all of my problems. I am almost certainly the cause of all of them. If you're familiar at all with Alcoholics Anonymous, you'll know that they have 12 steps. And the first step is simply admitting that you are powerless to save yourself from your addiction. And this, I know right now from a situation I'm dealing with, this is really hard for people to, to admit, right? We want to think that we can save ourselves. And the first step of Alcoholics Anonymous, the first step really of the gospel is admit you can't. Be free from that burden that you could save yourself. But the second step in AA is very important too. It's to admit that you need a power greater than yourself. Now, the history of AA was founded by two Christians, so that's why there's this rooted, this power greater than yourself to save you. A lot of people associate with God, and AA has kind of a Christian religious sound to it. But admit that you can't save yourself, and admit that you need somebody else to save you. How do we do this in the Christian life? How do we receive this redemption? If we know that we're sinful, if we know that that's the reason we need to be redeemed, then how do we receive redemption? Let's look at it in verse 7. In him we have redemption through his blood. So what does redemption mean here? How is Paul using it? The word for redemption here is used very infrequently in the New Testament. It only occurs 10 times. When you're starting off in seminary studying Greek, this is one of those game stopper verses or words. You're reading it, you're thinking everything's going fine, you come across this word, you have no idea what it means because it only pops up 10 times. It's a vocabulary word you're not going to really be doing the heavy lifting on to begin learning Greek. But since it occurs so infrequently in the New Testament, we have to look outside to give us a better understanding of what it means. And there we discover in uh, ancient Greek literature that it was used frequently to refer to the freeing of slaves through the payment of a price or goods or something. And it seems likely that Paul's Greek-speaking readers would have understood redemption here because of this word as a reference of the price uh, paid to free a captive. And what is the price? What would they have instinctively known the way Paul sets this up and using this word? It's that the payment for it, the purchase price for your redemption is the blood of Jesus Christ. See, it's through Jesus in our place that we receive redemption. It was us who did the transgressing, right? It's us who have the sin nature. It's us 
who are condemned in our sins. We deserve these punishments. We're in bondage and needed freedom. And Jesus provided the deliverance, and not just the deliverance, he paid the price for it. There is no other way. That's why it be, it's fronted in this verse that we are, you know, how do you receive redemption? It starts with, how, with the how, in him, in Jesus Christ. In our pluralistic society, a question often arises, why not other religions? Why is Christianity so exclusive? Well, if we're faithful to the Bible, then we know that salvation belongs to the Lord, and Jesus himself, the Lord who salvation belongs to, says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Jesus doesn't say this in some distant memory that we can't, or in some far back aeon, and this isn't historical. We, we know it's historical. It's not it's being said to somebody in a night vision or a prophecy. No, it is said in concrete history, recorded by the power of the Holy Spirit for your good and salvation today. Why is Christianity exclusive? Because I have yet to hear a story where a God comes down from his throne, exchanges his divine nature and everything that means, and takes on human flesh, who receives punishment for transgressions to laws that he made and gave us, and he does all of this to save people that he loves. Our God is the good shepherd who seeks and saves the lost. He pursues us. That's what we were talking about last week. Jesus takes the punishment that we deserve, and he gives us the status of adopted sons of God. It's a, it's a simple exchange. Your sinfulness gets his righteousness. It's no wonder that the hymn writer could sing joyfully this line, bearing shame and scoffing rude, in my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Hallelujah, what a savior. But he doesn't just deliver us, he pays the price for our freedom through his blood. And the blood shed on the cross is the how of redemption. Uh, this is absolutely connected to the entire history of covenant faithfulness and the way God forgives and pardons sin because it's rooted in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament. We actually we see it even before the sacrificial system, right? We see it in the garden. After Adam and Eve sinned, and God pronounces cursings on both on them and the serpent, do you know what he does before he gets them out of the garden? He covers them, it says, in garments of skin and clothed them. He covers their sin and shame with his goodness. But there's a question. Where did the garments of skin come from? What had to happen to produce skins to clothe Adam and Eve? It cost blood of whatever animal was killed to produce the hide to cover their shame and sin. Because how else are you going to get garments of skin? It requires blood. And we see it in the story of Abraham's sacrifice of Isaac. Remember this very... And terrifying for every child's story to hear preached in church about the father who's told by God to go sacrifice his child, and the child is picking it up as he's going along and saying, hey, we got fire, you know, we got wood, where's the ram? Where's, where's the sacrifice? And all Adam, Abraham keeps saying is, oh, 
God, God will provide it. And they get up on the mountain, and before Abraham can go through with it, God produces and gives the sacrifice. God will provide, and he does provide a ram, the blood of the ram, instead of the blood of Isaac. The Passover is the same way with the sacrifice of the lamb. It's the lamb's blood that's put on the doorposts over the homes of Israel that the angel of death will see and pass over the lamb's blood for the Israelites' blood. And the New Testament, of course, picks up on this. I said it earlier, but when John sees Jesus walking along the Sea of Galilee, he cries out, Behold the Son of God, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. When we gather for communion, we repeat Jesus' words when he takes up the cup. He says, This is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for the many for the forgiveness of sins. And, and the author of Hebrews, if you want to hit this home, the author of Hebrews 9 just paints a powerful image of what Jesus does for us as our high priest, of what type of sacrifice he offers. He says, He, that being Jesus, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. He would say in a couple verses later that Christ put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So he had to be sacrificed for us. That's how we get his blood that saves us. And we'll get into more details about why it had to be a sacrifice in just a minute. But for right now, it's necessary for us to hear that Christ died for us. And that blood was the necessary way to redeem us. In the prohibitions of eating the blood of an animal in Leviticus, the Lord says... The life of the flesh is in the blood, and I have given it for you on the altar to make atonement for your souls. For it is the blood that makes atonement by the life. John Stott, in his classic, The Cross of Christ, points out three things helpful in that verse for what we're talking about here with being through the blood we are redeemed. He says this, there are three things helpful for us to understand why blood was necessary for redemption. The first is blood is the symbol of life. The second is that blood makes atonement. Life is in blood and so atones for the lifeblood of another. Life was given for life. And the third thing that he wants us to see is blood was given to me by God for his atoning purpose. These sacrifices were ordained by God, not man in order for man to be redeemed. That's what we keep seeing. Who clothed Adam and Eve? God. Who provided the sacrifice for, uh, instead of Isaac? God. Who provides redemption for Israel in the Passover? God. Who pays the price for your sins? God. Paul reminds us in 1 Corinthians 6.20, you were bought with a price. You are not your own. Now, we have brave stories of someone laying their life down for others. I love the movie Man of Fire with Denzel Washington because it's just classic Denzel. I mean, he's a man on a mission. He's also a really burdened, sorrowful man who has lots of sadness in his life. He's a washed up and drunk uh, special forces officer who takes a body, uh, bodyguard position for a young, rich family in Mexico. And he becomes very attached to the little girl that he's protecting, and she gives him purpose, gives him meaning again in his life. And of course, she does get kidnapped. 
And Denzel Washington's character thinks she is dead, so he seeks revenge. And it's a lot of action, it's a lot of violence, it's a lot of bloodshed. But this girl he loves so much, he thinks he is dead. She is dead, and he wants revenge. So near the end of the movie, he finds out she's alive. He connects with the leader of the kidnapping gang, and the leader offers him a deal. The leader says, I will give you her life for your life. And Denzel Washington doesn't believe it. He says, no, the girl's dead. And the guy says, no, a, a dead kid is not good business for me. I, I needed her to be alive. I will give you her life if you give me your life. He thought he was on a mission of revenge, but he was actually on a mission of redemption. He could save her life. And so he makes the obvious choice. He gives his life for her. He lets himself be killed so that she can live. This was a somewhat based on real life story, but there's another one that is based in real life from World War II. It took place in a prison camp of the Japanese and the men, American prisoners were sent out to dig latrines or ditches or something. They were given shovels. It's like 14 shovels, 14 men. They come back um, from their digging expedition for the day. And the Japanese, when they get back to the camp, the Japanese guards are furious. And they start screaming at the, the prisoners and just, you know, chewing them out because they can only account for 13 shovels. And obviously they're worried somebody's pocketing one and is going to try to dig out and break from the camp. And they're getting very excited. And the Americans are saying, we don't, these are the shovels that you gave us. We all brought our shovels back. We, we didn't have 14, we had 13. Eventually the Japanese decide, all right, we're just going to start killing people unless you, you know, someone comes out and admits they, they've done something bad with the shovel. And none of the guys are moving because none of them did anything wrong. And as it looks like they're about to do, follow through on their words, one man finally steps up and says, I took the shovel. And the Japanese shoot him. He died so that the rest of them didn't die. And the story goes that when the Japanese went back through, they found out that they just miscounted. That all the shovels were accounted for. But the man, this one prisoner, sacrificed his life to save his other men in arms, his brothers in arms. These are stirring, emotional stories that shows us that people can give their lives for others. But it reminds me also of, you know, of Jesus' words that there's no greater love than one's laying themselves down for a friend. I'm certain that I would give my life for my children, but would I give my life for somebody I didn't love? Or somebody, or somebody that actually hates me? Paul says in Romans that you know, maybe someone will die for a righteous person, maybe even for a good person, but it's still a stretch. But God, he says in Romans 5, 8 says, God shows his love for us that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Denzel died for somebody he cared deeply about. This prisoner of war died for men that he, I'm sure, cared about and had endured all sorts of hardship for. And it's beautiful and stirring. But if it came down to would we die for somebody else that would be our enemy. I don't think any of us would jump up and do it. So thank God I am not your Savior. Thank God I am not my Savior. Thank God that we have Jesus Christ who died for us while we were sinners and enemies of God. My blood is weak, but his is life-giving and strong and will wash you of all your sins. Which leads to the final point, 
what do we receive from this redemption? It says that in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace. Forgiveness of trespasses. That's so, why the cross and all the blood? Why simply not forgive us without sacrifice? I mean, we're told to forgive others as we've been forgiven. We prayed that together not too long ago. Why can't God do that? Well, because this makes a gigantic assumption that somehow we and God are the same, which is not the case. Our sin against him is not the same as our sins against one another. It shows two errors, that we have taken uh, too lightly our own sin and too lightly the majesty of God. It's not that we should ponder whether it was difficult for God to forgive us or why doesn't he forgive us some other way. We should ponder about why is it possible that he would forgive us at all. But he does it. He does it completely. And not only does it, I mean, he does it completely. It is as if you were washed completely of your sins. The psalmist says, For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love towards those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. God's pardoning of our sins and the redemption of his son Jesus Christ are linked together. Calvin again says it best, God blotted out our sins of his own free goodness and shows himself altogether bountiful and does not look for any payment for it at our hands. So we receive forgiveness of our transgressions according to the riches of his grace. That's why he, he's so bountiful. He gives us a gift. It reminds me of Jesus' parable of the man that had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii, the other owed 50. And the man decides to forgive both of his debtors. And Jesus asks, who loved the man more? And the Peter answers, the one who had the larger debt. All who have been, given through, have been forgiven through Jesus' blood have received forgiveness of sins, the wiping of our record of wrongs. We have grace and treasures and riches that the world can't even imagine. Our treasure is truly in heaven and incomparable to earthly riches. So I'll conclude this way. It is this incomparableness, this, this riches of grace that is given to us sinners that so confuses the world and at the same time can empower Christian mission, right? We who have been dead men and women walking, who now have redemption through Jesus's blood, should view the world differently. We should see it as God sees it, lost and in need of the saving work of his son. It's interesting that Paul, who is so free in Christ Jesus to write such beautiful words that so perfectly capture what Christ has done for us, he will refer to himself as a slave for Christ's sake in uh, passages like 2 Corinthians 4, 5, which was the charge at my ordination by my friend uh, Derek Bright. Paul writes, What we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. That word servant is a Greek word that commonly is translated as slave. So having been freed from sin, we can give ourselves as servants to grace. Lao, his name's going to be hard for me to pronounce, Lao Fuk was a believer who came to Christ in Canton, China in 1861. He had a fervent heart of compassion for the salvation of the Chinese 
who were taken from uh, China to mine places in South America. And he had a problem. He really wanted to go reach these miners who were being transported far from their country to share the gospel with them. And he couldn't do it because these, these men, they, they weren't, this wasn't a job offer. This was servitude. This was slavery. So he finally figured out a way to go preach Christ. He found a way and he sold himself into slavery in order to preach the gospel to the other slaves. He died in a foreign land, but not until he had won nearly 200 other slaves to Jesus Christ. Stories like this make no sense to our world. That a man would choose to give up freedom, to take on slavery, to, to preach Christ? It's because they don't get what happens to us because of this grace, because of redemption. It's what Jim Elliot, the missionary martyr, said. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. To this man, physical slavery didn't matter anymore because he was free in Christ through the riches of his grace, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. So we who have been redeemed and have received something that we cannot lose, let us lose ourselves in service of the blood of grace, which gives us life everlasting. Let's pray. Lord, thank you that you don't leave us to save ourselves. Thank you that you don't tell us to do more, be better, to beat ourselves up, to, to sorrow, to whine, to do all sorts of penance. You have done it all through your Son. There is now only one sacrifice offered for the forgiveness of sins. It occurred on Calvary, and it, is keep, it keeps on going to all who come to your Son. It saves all those that it touches and chooses. We are thankful that this blood washes us from our sins and restores us uh, to you in relationship with the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and that we will have life eternal with you in the new heavens and the new earth. Amen.